Welcome to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today I'm really excited to bring back onto the show for a second time Dr. Massimo Pigliucci. He's the author of a brand new book, The Quest for Character, what the story of Socrates and Alcibiades teaches us about our search for good leaders. Uh, Massimo is an expert in ancient philosophy. He also holds a PhD in evolutionary biology. So we have a rich conversation about character, about virtue, about how these things found their roots in Greco-Roman culture and how those ancient figures are, are models, or at least model uh, how to uh, teach ethics, and the art of living today. Uh, Dr. Pigliucci teaches at the City College of New York, where he's the K.D. Irani Professor of Philosophy there. He's the author-editor of 16 books. Uh, please check out the show notes, and I highly recommend grabbing a copy of The Quest for Character or any of his many excellent books. Uh, those of you who enjoy Stoic philosophy, you're going to love some of the interview tidbits as well as I do ask him some questions about that. As my listeners know, that's a personal interest of mine. If I can be of any service to you, please reach out to me. You can check out my website at brianrussellphd.com or email me directly at brian at brianrussellphd.com. Also, if you're interested in Centering Prayer, I'd like to invite you to the monthly Centering Prayer Gathering that I co-host with another Centering Prayer author, Rich Lewis. We host that typically on the third Saturday of most months, but if you'd like to be on the list to get an invitation, sign up at centeringprayerbook.com. So uh, without further ado, uh, here's my interview with Dr. Massimo Pigliucci. Welcome back to the show, Massimo. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and congratulations on your new book, The Quest for Character. Um, and uh, it's a little bit of a shift, I guess, but you move, you've written, recently you've written a lot on stoicism, put out several books, and uh, now you have a book uh, with the subtitle, What the Story of Socrates and Alcibiades Teaches Us About Our Search for Good Leaders. Uh, talk about the inspiration for that and the move back to Socrates, I guess, as the basis for some Right. So, so yeah, you're, you're right. I've been writing about stoicism for the last several years, but, um, you know, stoicism, of course, didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, it was uh, a Socratic philosophy. In fact, the, the Stoics themselves considered um, the philosophy Socratic in origin. And so it's not surprising that eventually you're going to end up <laughs> looking back at Socrates, I guess. The Inspiration for the story was really Alcibiades, however, who is a lesser known character, of course, than Socrates. I mean, and everybody's at least heard of Socrates. Not that many people have heard of Alcibiades. And I'm actually surprised that there hasn't been a movie uh, about the life of Alcibiades because the guy was incredible. I mean, he was uh, so imagine somebody who is impossibly handsome, uber rich. Uh, brave, dashing, uh, you, you know, it's, it's everything that you want in a human being, except for one thing, he was not wise. <laughs> and of course, what does he do? He, he goes and gets into politics and, uh, and into statesmanship, which uh, Socrates argues uh, is the kind of thing you need to do only if you actually have wisdom. So 
The second chapter of the book starts out with this dialogue between Socrates and Alcibiades that it's based presumably on something that really happened. They were in fact friends and Alcibiades was uh, also Socrates' student. And a very young Alcibiades goes to Socrates and says, look, I'm, I'm, I want to be a statesman. I want to be a leader of Athens. Uh, what do you think? And what follows is essentially what we would today call a job interview that you know Socrates does, uh, but but he's looking at the character traits that characterize Alcibiades, right? So so he's looking at is Alcibiades the kind of person you would want as a leader, and pretty quickly it's clear that it's not, because despite all of the stuff that Alcibiades has going for him. He's also affected by hubris, he's, he's a narcissist, he's into self-aggrandizing, he doesn't really care about Athens and the people, he cares about himself. And so at one point, Socrates uh, says to Alcibiades, you know, then alas, my friend, what a condition you suffer from. I hesitate to name it, but it must be said, you are wedded to stupidity, best of men, of the most extreme sort, as the argument accuses you and you accuse yourself. So this is why you're leaping into the affairs of the city before you have been educated. And like, ouch, right? This is the kind of, uh, this is not the kind of thing you want to hear from your friend and mentor. And in fact, Socrates goes on to say that the problem that Alcibiades has, it's not just him. It's a lot of politicians are that way. Uh, a lot of politicians don't have what one would want in a statesman. And that was the inspiration for the book. It's like, okay, so what is it that we want for from a politician? What kind of people should be in charge of our society? What what you know, who would we want to see there and why? And that's that's the major bit of the exploration of the book. Obviously, it's a, a timely book, probably always a timely book for what you're trying to uh, accomplish there. And uh, again, I, want to, I was saying this off camera, but I want to congratulate you as a philosopher and also with your, you have a PhD and also what evolutionary biology and you can still write crystal clear and uh, a book that I think everybody listening <laughs> could actually digest, which, uh, and I mean that as a compliment to a person with as many, much uh, academic credentials as you have. Thanks. Sometimes in, in academia, it's not a compliment to be understandable by people, right? It's like, oh, well, it must be that you're, you're not saying anything interesting if, if everybody can understand you. But of course, that's one of the inspirations from the Stoics. One of the differences between the Stoics, like people like Seneca or Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius, and other philosophers is precisely that you can understand them very well. You don't, you don't need a background in philosophy. You read Seneca, and it's pretty, pretty clear, pretty obvious what he's saying. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's inspiring. It's like, why should be difficult to understand people? It's, uh, you know, if you want to, you need to communicate. And if you wanted to communicate, you need to do it in a way that it's as clear and approachable as possible. Um, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, and just to get back to kind of the foundations, you almost immediately in the book go back uh, to the foundational virtues of wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance is foundation for a good character. Can um, can you talk about like how, why those are the foundations and maybe just get a little bit into the, the weeds on how those became these core virtues that then get picked up in stoicism and then moving even move into Christianity and even Western culture right. today. Right. So those are the so-called cardinal virtues. Um, and they were actually, they're listed by Plato in the Republic. And then they were taken up 
by a number of the Greco-Roman schools, especially, particularly Stoicism. They happen to be, however, fairly universal, meaning that modern research <clears throat> shows that those four are part of a group, a core group of about six characteristics or virtues or behavioral attitudes, whatever you want to call them, that are pretty much universal among human societies. That is, they're found not just in the in the Western tradition, but also in pretty much everywhere else that people had looked. Uh, the six include the, the four that we just talked about, so practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance, as well as two other things that the Stoics also recognized, but they didn't call them, they didn't refer to them as virtues. One is um, humanity, and the other one is transcendence. So humanity is the notion that we are all connected to other human beings, that we're the same as other human beings. The Stoics did have that. That, that was the notion of cosmopolitanism, basically. Uh, but they didn't refer to it as a virtue, but it was certainly an important part of Stoicism. And not only Stoicism, cynicism was, in fact, preceded Stoicism. Uh, there was another major Greco-Roman philosophy which preceded Stoicism, and they also, the cynics also, were cosmopolitan. The sixth one is transcendence, which is this notion that we're connected not just to other human beings, but in fact to the cosmos in general, that we are bits and pieces of a larger universe and we're connected, literally connected by cause and effect. We're made of the same stuff as the rest of the universe and we are connected by cause and effect to the rest of the universe. Again, the Stoics also had that notion and uh, they often refer to uh, the, the the idea that we are parts of the cosmos and that we should be reconnecting with the cosmos. So even though they didn't consider it a virtue, that's that that was uh, there as well. So now one can ask why those six might be so fundamental, so in, important that they pretty much found everywhere. And if you think about it, they pretty much cover all the bases, right? They they there is talk about cosmic connection. There is talk about connection to other human beings. Temperance is about doing things in right measure, which you would think is fundamental to human life, you know, neither too much nor too little. Courage is the tendency to do things even though they might cost you personally. Justice is the idea that you want to treat people uh, with uh, respect and, and fairness, which is the basis of any kind of society. If you don't treat other people that way, then you're not going to have a society, essentially, or at least not a stable society. And practical wisdom is arguably one, arguably the most fundamental of them all, and that is the knowledge of what is really good and what is not good, as opposed to what other people might tell you that is good. Like, for instance, just I was just having a discussion today in class with my students. I'm teaching ancient philosophy this semester, and we were talking about the Gorgias, which is a um, platonic dialogue where Socrates has this interesting interaction with one of the sophists, Gorgias. And Gorgias argues that happiness is about getting your way, about having, you know, if you want stuff, you get stuff. If you want power, you get power. It's about, you know, convincing other people that they should be doing your bidding, basically. And Socrates' response is like, no, that's not that's not happiness. Happiness has to do with acting with wisdom because everything else depends on your wisdom or lack thereof. If you're wise, you can use your resources, uh, your wealth, your fame, your reputation, anything for good. And if you're not wise, you're going to use it for bad. And so it's not the wealth in itself. It's not the reputation in itself. It's not uh, even your health 
that is important is how you use it if you have them. And, uh, and that's a fundamental distinction that sort of separates the Socratic approach from, uh, in this particular case, the sophistic approach. Can you clarify uh, your, the definition of transcendence a little bit? Um, again, a lot of uh, like Christian folks will be listening to this, or even, um, you know, if you take like Islam, Judaism, or Christianity, transcendence is usually God outside of creation, and you framed it as basically connection to creation. If you take like the yeah. Stoics, for example, um, did they consider, and they believed in the gods at some level, did they consider the logos higher than the gods or under the gods? And could you just say something a little bit about that definition yeah. of transcendence that, um, over against what maybe a, I don't know, a Christian theologian would possibly say, if, if you're comfortable kind of going that direction? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that's a, that's a good question. So you're right, for the Abrahamic traditions in general, transcendence means a connection with God at some level or another, and God is assumed to be outside of the universe because he's a creator of the universe. In the case of the Stoics and of other Greco-Roman philosophies, they were pantheists. Mm. So yes, they did believe in a God of sorts, but God was identified with the universe itself. The Logos, uh, which is this notion of rationality or, or intelligence or sentience, however you want to uh, think of it, is actually characteristic of the universe as a whole. So the Stoics thought that the universe is a living organism endowed with the logos and that's what they call god and we know this because they're pretty explicit about it uh there's one of the com ancient commentators diogenes laertius who when he writes about the stoics he literally says the stoics called god the same as nature the same as cause and effect the same as the logos so it is essentially equivalent and uh that conception of god has not disappeared uh with you know it's not gone with the with the stoics it has been it has been uh, re-emerging here and there throughout the history of Western philosophy. Spinoza was also a pantheist, for instance, and he pretty much, in fact, he got a lot of his ethics and metaphysics from the Stoics. Uh, this is also what is sometimes referred to as Einstein's God. Einstein once was asked, you know, what do you, what do you believe in God? And he said, yeah, I believe in the, in the laws of nature. And so the idea was, and the, the logos is the laws of nature. And again, again, that's another conception of the logos. So transcendence in that sense means that the notion that we are connected to something greater than ourselves. And that one, I think, is common with the Christian uh, notion. It's just that even in the, in, also in the Christian case, it is a connection with something greater than yourself. It's just that in one case, in the case of the Stoics, that greater than yourself is the cosmos, uh, and uh, in the case of the Christians, that greater than yourself is is God. But um, at the level of there is some a recognition that there is something bigger uh, that that we are all connected to. That's not very different, really, between between the two. Whether you are a theist or a, or a, or a pantheist. That's really helpful. Thank you. And, and I'm just curious. Uh, you have this just wonderful back drop in because you have the evolutionary by evolutionary biology PhD also. So. How does that, um, when you think about the virtues, what does your expertise on just how our DNA was shaped and, you know, the whole kind of nature of a human fit into, especially the, the, what you just described a few minutes ago about almost that these four or six virtues are almost universal. Does that make sense from like a biological perspective to you? Could you shed any light on that? Yeah, it makes sense to me. And in fact, it makes sense also to a number of modern primatologists and comparative 
evolutionary biologists. So the basic idea, which incidentally the Stoics did have, although they didn't know anything about evolution, of course, uh, but they talked about nature and what nature contributes to, uh, you know, to our to virtue or, or to character traits, and the, the, their basic idea was that we have certain tendencies for cooperation with other people, for being nice to other people, for being social. Those are embedded in us by nature. We would say today they're instinctive. They're the result of, we would say today, they're the result of evolution as social primates. And we share, so a sense of empathy, for instance, a sense of fairness, uh, a sense of recognition that there are other individuals within our group that have similar wants and needs and fears and, and hopes and stuff like that. All of that we share with other social primates. It's instinctive. We, we don't need to be taught empathy. We don't need to be taught, uh, you know, a basic sense of fairness. However, the Stoics also recognize that these, these, these uh, essential abilities that nature builds into us are limited. They need to be expanded. And they thought that that's where reason comes in. Of course, reason itself is a gift of nature. It's the result, and we would say today, it's a result of evolution. Um, but they thought that by itself, these, these uh, characteristics that nature endowed us with are not sufficient. Here's one example uh, in, in modern terms. So we're both pro-social and, co and cooperative, but we're also xenophobic, naturally so. Meaning that it comes natural to us to trust people that are members of the in-group you know, people that we know, people that we grew up with, et cetera. And we are genuinely generous toward those people. We're genuinely empathic toward those people. We we build friendships and, you know, loving relationships with those people. But at the same time, we tend to be also instinctively uh, skeptical, or if not downright hostile of outsiders, of people that come from the outside, especially if they don't look like members of, of the in-group. Now, presumably, both of those things, that is, an ability to cooperate, a tendency to cooperate with other people, and a xenophobic tendency, they were both the result of evolution. Uh, because for a long time, human beings lived in small bands of 60, 80, 100 individuals, most of whom were relatives, and so knew each other very well and could trust each other. And for, for the same amount of time, for that time where, you know, those hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution, if somebody was to come in from the outside, that was probably bad news. It was it was probably an aggression, very likely an aggression. So it makes perfect sense to me uh, as an evolutionary biologist that nature has built into us these apparently contradictory uh, behavioral tendencies, right? On the one hand, cooperation and empathy, and on the other hand, xenophobia and fear. And so it is up to our, in terms of modern humans, to our reason to say, okay, uh, what I want to do is actually to overcome my natural sense of xenophobia and nurture my natural sense of cooperation and empathy. Why? Because I realize that just because somebody looks different from me or just because I don't know that person, it doesn't mean that they're a threat. It doesn't mean that they're bad human beings. So, so it's always a combination of nature and nurture, which incidentally is exactly what I was studying when I was an evolutionary biologist. I was interested in the always complex interactions between nature and nurture. That was really helpful. Thank you. And, and now, I guess to to, to amplify that that this the whole issue of maybe nature and nurture and the whole point of teaching virtue. You have this wonderful uh, 
character study, shall we say, right in the, right in the middle of the book where you have uh, two Roman emperors. So these aren't people in groups of 60. These are people, I mean, I have no idea what the population right. was, but I guess millions of people and millions of square miles of territory they now have to cover. So Nero, Marcus Aurelius, uh, two, two famous, one infamous, one very famous uh, Roman emperors who both had excellent uh, Stoic teachers. So looking at that, uh, what do you make of the fact that they ended up living such contrasting lives? One goes down in infamy, another one is you know, lauded as the true philosopher king. Yeah, there are two chapters in the book that uh, look into a number of case studies from antiquity, from, from the Greco-Roman history. And by the way, I should say, the reason to look at Greco-Roman history and not just the philosophy, the, the reason I'm looking at the Greco-Roman philosophy is because I think it still is very, very much uh, useful to us today. But why look at Greco-Roman history as opposed to, say, modern contemporary examples of you know, leaders? And the reason for that is because I want my readers to focus on the issue of politics and ethics, which is really what the book is about, and not to slide into partisanship. So if I were to give you examples of modern leaders, and I start talking, you know, positively about one and negatively about the other, depending on your political leanings, you're immediately going to shut down and not listen to the rest of what I'm saying. I, I'm counting on the fact that not as many people have strong opinions about Nero or Marcus Aurelius or Cato the Younger or something like that, so that we can, you know, the distance of time basically can allow us to look at these case studies for what they are, for what they teach us about human relationships in terms of, especially in terms of politics. Now, those two chapters are, are in contrast with each other because in one chapter, I look at instances of philosophers who got into their mind that they should be trying to teach statesmen, politicians. So they go to a politician and say, okay, here's what virtue is about. Here's what you should be doing, right? So that's, for instance, Seneca and Nero is one example of that. Although one of my favorite examples uh, in that chapter is Plato, who uh, in age 60, so pretty old by the standards of the time, gets on a boat, goes from Athens to Syracuse in Sicily, which was a fairly treacherous voyage, and he tries to teach Dionysus I and then later on Dionysus II of Syracuse. Uh, because he wants to see if he can put into practice his ideas about, about politics and, and justice. And as a result, he almost loses his life twice because Dionysus I sells Plato in slavery and, and Plato is then rescued by, his, by some of his friends who pay the ransom. And uh, Dionysus II puts him at house arrest for a, for a long time. And, you know, he, he just is barely escapes with his life. So there's that chapter with examples of, of philosophers trying to teach politicians, and they're almost always a failure. No, none of them basically succeeds. The following chapter is about, in a sense, the reverse. That is, these are statesmen or politicians politicians or leaders who themselves are interested in philosophy and seek the advice of philosophers, right, to improve. No, those are cases like Marcus Aurelius, Cicero during the Roman Republic, Cato the Younger also during the Roman Republic, Julian the Apostate during the late Roman Empire, uh, and in fact, a third case involving Plato, that of his student Dion, who uh, succeeded, in fact, in becoming a good leader at least for some time, for a time in Syracuse. And this second group, it's almost always successful. Uh, 
Not successful in the sense that these people were able to do what they wanted to do. For instance, Cicero wanted to save Cicero and Cato the Younger, both of them wanted to save the Roman Republic and they did not succeed. Um, they, you know, the Republic ended and uh, the empire started. So, but they did, they were a success in the sense that they were actually able to pursue uh, policies that were informed by their ethics, that were informed by their philosophical understanding of, of things. And that's all the philosophy can guarantee, of course. You can guarantee good intentions, not good outcomes, because you know the outcomes are up to uh, whatever historical forces and, and whatever other people are, are, are doing. So those two chapters, to me, teach us an important lesson, which is that it's not a good idea to try to convince somebody who is already into politics that they should act in a more ethical way unless they themselves want to act in an ethical way. In other words, you know, wisdom and virtue come from the inside, not from the outside. Now, that doesn't mean that philosophy doesn't have a role to play. Marcus Aurelius did have teachers. Uh, you know, Julian the Apostet had teachers. Uh, Cicero himself had teachers. So it's, it's certainly, there is certainly a, a connection between politics and ethics, but it's not, sorry, uh, yes, by politics and ethics, but it's not the philosopher who teaches the statesman is the statesman who wants to be taught philosophy. And I think that also applies to us non-leaders, non-statesmen, you know, everyday people. If I try to beat somebody on the head with with ideas of you know philosophy and ethics, they're probably not going to listen. But if they come to me because they want to learn things, then then they're open, uh, and then that's that's a whole different game. That's a whole different uh, situation. Do you have Do you have a sense? Of, uh, this this is kind of off the cuff, but when you because you know, I I fully agree with your answer, and it's and and uh, you know it's even those old proverbs when the student's ready, the teacher appears or whatever. So you can't force things on persons. From just evolution, is is there an explanation why one person might be more open to learning, or does that more of the nurture piece depending on one's experiences, one's more open to to learning? Do you have any opinion on that? That's a good question. So whenever people ask me about in, anything that has to do with nature and nurture, my, my answer is usually something on the lines of both. And, and we don't know how they interact. Most of the times we don't know how they interact. So it's easy enough to imagine, especially in human beings, because it's very difficult to do the proper experiments. You know, if, we, if you give me a plant or a bacterium or a fruit fly, I can probably tell you quite a bit about the nature-nurture interactions but if you give me a human being it's very difficult because it's much more difficult to do the proper experiments it's also unethical to do the proper experiments among other things but my best guess is that anything that has to do with humanity human beings because we are complex and animals is a inextricable result of nature and nurture it's easy to imagine that for instance some people might be genetically predisposed, so in an innate fashion, to be more generous or less generous, more open or less open, more cooperative or less cooperative. It's, it's you know, almost any character trait is probably, probably does have a genetic component and there is variability in the human population for that component. That said, 
it's also very likely the case that even if you're not naturally inclined to be generous, if you get the right parents and the right environment and the right education, your degree of generosity improves. Let me give you an analogy, which in fact, the Greek Romans do, did uh, propose often, and that's with learning a musical instrument. So we know that there are some people who just have a talent, uh, likely an innate talent. Like when they're very young kids, they pick up a musical instrument and they just run with, with, with it, right? You know, both Mozart and Beethoven were, uh, you know, prodigies of that kind. But even Mozart and Beethoven improved because of teaching, because somebody in, in those cases, their parents, their, their, their fathers, sat them down and gave them structure and instruction, et cetera, et cetera. You can also imagine easily the opposite extreme, somebody like me, who is almost hopeless about playing a musical instrument. I tried several times, so I, I know that for a fact. And yet even I could get a tune out of my, a recognizable tune out of my alto sax by learning, by trying, by repetition, by taking some lessons, et cetera, et cetera. I will never go to Carnegie Hall and play a concert. I will never go and even play for friends because I don't, I'm just not good enough. But I can learn something, even though I don't, I don't become that good at it. I think the same is true for character traits. Uh, that is, there's going to be a genetic component. That genetic component is variable across humanity. So some people have, have it more or less but we can all be taught, we can all be improving, depending if we are, if we find ourselves in the right environmental conditions. Okay. And, and, and uh, you know, I love ancient history and always have, and, you know, I even have uh, both of my daughters love ancient philosophy and they've read Stoics since they were kids, uh, teenagers and stuff. And uh, when you, you know, and you also gave the explanation for why you went back. You're going to talk about how to, you know, how to teach leaders, especially political leaders, you know, ethics and such. So you're using these folks from the distant past. Uh, we also live in an environment now where a lot of times figures, even from a couple hundred years ago, end up being vilified simply because they don't live by the values of today. So, right. What, I mean, what's the risk? I mean, obviously, we can go back to Stoics, and they were against slavery, and they were against gladiator games. So you can see some positive things, but what's, what's the risk of going back to ancient figures when sometimes they don't come off, even at their best, they're still not as enlightened as we might be in the, you know, 2022. Well, I mean, whenever, yeah, I encountered that, that uh, argument or that objection a number of times. And my counter argument usually is, well, just wait another two or three centuries and see how you're going to be looking unenlightened to the next generation so does that mean that that um you know everything you're doing now it's worthless and the answer of course is no uh, we're gonna look if you look back into history i think it's a good reason it's a, it's a good approach to a try to learn from the positives from from the kind of stuff that these people did or said that is still useful today and then also understand but you know, and put into context the negatives, but don't discard uh, earlier knowledge and earlier experience just because it doesn't arise to the to the contemporary standards. For one thing, because contemporary standards will change, right? And and so it, we're going to find ourselves in the same situation uh, pretty pretty soon. But also because it's too easy, let's say, to point out to the fact that Aristotle was pretty much a misogynist. That's true. There's, there's no question about it, right? 
Um, okay, but that's not very interesting because most people at the time were misogynists. Right. So that's that doesn't make Aristotle stand up on uh, in in any respect. On the other hand, the the positive stuff that some of the good stuff that Aristotle said about ethics and justice and so on and so forth that really did stand up at the time and still stands up today. And I think that's the kind of thing that we want to to focus on. The same goes for all of the other figures that I look at in in the book you know Seneca for instance who was a stoic as the stoics uh, often did he actually writes that women have the same uh, mental abilities as men and that they should be taught philosophy just as men so that's very enlightened for the time but he also can't help himself but write uh, disparagingly about, you know, saying to somebody, oh, you're, you're acting in a womanly fashion when he wants to criticize somebody, right? That, now, today, that makes us cringe, and for good reasons, because, you know, no, we, we shouldn't be talking that way. But again, get the, con the context right. At the time, that was common, common parlance, so it's not really surprising that Seneca use that language. What is surprising is that right next to that sentence, then he has, he says, and women should be taught in the same way as men because they have the same mental abilities. That was extraordinary by the standards of the time. That's extraordinary by the standards of our time. There's still too many people alive today that don't think that women have the same mental abilities as, as men or should have the same rights as men. So in so let's learn what is, what is good and positive from the people that preceded us, because that's how we make progress, uh, ethically and, and otherwise. That doesn't mean that we should whitewash the rest. I mean, we should definitely say that, you know, ancient Roman society was a society based on slavery. There's no question about it. But it wasn't just ancient Roman society, Greek society, Egyptian society, Chinese society, Indian society. Everyone at the time uh, had an economy that was based on slavery. So we acknowledge that. We, uh, if we need to, we can acknowledge that. Yeah, that was a bad thing. Uh, as if you know, it's not it's not an option to to do something like that uh, today. But now let's focus on the stuff that put those people ahead of their time. Let's focus on focus on the stuff that we can still learn from them. We you know to say that we should learn the slavery is bad. That's kind of trivial. Like yeah, no kidding, <laughs> right? That's that's not very interesting. Uh, interesting. But to to say hey, maybe we should pay attention to the notion that these people have that um, a good life has nothing to do with money. And material possessions well that actually is a lesson we still haven't learned we still live in a highly consumerist society where we're still bombarded by uh, the, the people telling us that the way to be happy is to buy another car or another iphone or to make money or to be famous etc cetera, etc cetera. and we still have not gotten that idea right i think so that is one of the things that uh, one of the reasons why the greco-romans are still very much useful to us today. That's good. And one of the things I really appreciated, because uh, you use Marcus Aurelius, he was a Roman emperor, then, you know, Stoics were against slavery, Marcus Aurelius doesn't, I'm cheapening your argument, obviously, <laughs> doesn't eliminate slavery, so he doesn't live up to his virtue, uh, uh, or his own, um, yeah, his own virtues, his own opinions. And I, I liked how you, uh, how you work through that by contrasting it. And it just, and it was interesting to me, because you know, like the Apostle Paul in the, the New Testament talk, will, will say, slaves obey your masters, 
but then he has other right. texts where it's a little bit more enlightened and, and it's um, there's like this trajectory argument that comes out of even the Bible that's um, not for slavery, though it could be misread as for slavery. And I, I, I saw a parallel with what you were doing with Aurelius there. It was just kind of a hermeneutic where you're trying to show like I would call it a trajectory kind of an argument by showing, yeah. I think you already said that. Yeah, so I, I thought that was really interesting and, and helpful. Yeah, also about specifically about Marcus and, and slavery, we have to remember another thing that, yes, he was an emperor, so he had a hell of a lot of power for sure. But he did not have absolute power. He couldn't do whatever he wanted. Even, even if it had occurred to him that, that it would be a good thing to abolish slavery, he could not, it simply could not have done it. Uh, he would have been killed immediately. Because as I said, Roman society, like most ancient societies, was based on, uh, on an economy of slavery. So an emperor that suddenly decided to do away with slaves would have completely undercut the, the uh, economy of the entire empire. So he would not have survived that day doing something like that. What did he do instead? He passed laws to improve the life of slaves. And one of, one of my favorite examples is, uh, it may sound counterintuitive uh, to, to us moderns, for instance, one of the, the laws that he passed was this idea that slaves could be uh, tried in court by their masters. Now, one might think, might think, well, what's the improvement in that? You know, okay, so now the slave goes to, to a law, court of law, and he's now being tried by his master. Well, before that, the master could kill, could simply kill the slave if he had a suspicion that the slave had done something wrong, could co torture the slave to his to his own, you know, uh, uh, jurisdiction and to to his to his own decision to his own level. So it's like that's an improvement. The master now can no longer treat slaves in that way. They cannot no longer kill them or tortured them, they have to go to file a lawsuit, basically, if they think that the slave had done, has done something wrong. That's improvement. Uh, is it, you know, the same as abolishing slavery? Of course not. Uh, but it is what Marcus could do at the time. And in fact, there is a bit in the meditations where he explicitly says that we should not live as if we were in Plato's Republic. We should be happy to make incremental improvements because those are important because those make a difference and he, he really acted acted on it another example was uh, about christians you know marcus is often maligned by some christian commentators in their uh, in antiquity and early middle ages and and you know he's accused of persecuting the christians but in fact what he did was once he realized that some of his uh, provincial governors were in fact persecuting christians he sent a letter to the governor say you cannot persecute christians you cannot go after christians for being christians you can of course prosecute them if they have committed a crime just like any other roman citizen but not for being christians and that for the time was enlightened it's like you know that that was that was a very tolerant move on the part of the emperor and of course he had no reason to do it because at the time we're talking about the middle of the second century christianity was still a small sect that was almost unheard of outside of palestine outside of you know the the, the jewish uh, territories so um this was something that he for him, this was a minor thing. It wasn't. It was not a, a big deal. And yet, he, he still did the right thing. He, he instructed his governors to act correctly toward other people and and not persecute them for their beliefs. 
That's really, that's really helpful. I'm going to come back to a couple of questions about Christianity if we have time, but I, I want to get to uh, make sure I'm being fair to, to your book. And again, I, I, I just think the part that like this part is for so interesting too, because you just have really subtle, I mean, I think there's subtle messages about even politicians today, like, like Aurelius couldn't do everything he wanted and had to take the context. And like you said, incremental changes are sometimes um, some helpful, but I guess I was curious. I've noticed, and we talked a little bit about this the first time you were on the, the podcast, but I don't think I asked this specific question because obviously there is, at least in some circles, renewed interest in Stoics. Um, I know there's uh, some scholars who are getting popular books on even Epicureanism. And, and so Greco-Roman philosophy, at least in some ways, seems to be getting a renewed hearing. Um, you know, you, you teach at, I think, a famous school in New York City College. Uh, how popular, like, is, say, like, your ancient philosophy class, or, like, how popular is, are the, the things that you're teaching, like, in a New York City context, for example, if you can, you know, just speak. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I'm talking to you from City College. I'm in my office right now at City College, and I just finished teaching a, a class on um, ancient philosophy. Uh, they are pretty surprisingly popular. Uh, I taught several courses here on uh, practical ancient philosophy, on Stoicism, uh, or on comparing Stoicism, Epicureanism, and skepticism. You know, the, those those are some of the major Hellenistic philosophies. And um, students respond well to the to the notion that philosophy can actually be practical, because one of the problems with philosophy, as it is taught often these days, is that it is the quintessential useless pursuit, right? It's like, you know, it's about navel gazing. It's about thinking about abstract uh, issues that, that very few people care about. And to be fair, a lot of technical academic philosophy is in fact like that. Although also to be fair, that's no very different from any other academic pursuit. When I was into the sciences, I was spending most of my time talking, thinking about something very tiny, very narrow, about which very few people really cared, but that's the way you, you know, academic work, work actually uh, functions. It's like, you, you need to find something new to say about a particular subject matter. So you gotta get very specialized. But the idea that philosophy can also be in fact, on the, up, on, on the contrary, very uh, open field and very practical pursuit in terms of, you know, it literally changes your life, changes the way you, you're looking at things, changes your priorities, and therefore how you make your decisions and so on and so forth in life, in terms of career, relationships, uh, et cetera, then that's, that comes as a surprise to the students. And of course, and it's a welcome surprise because they, they really need that kind of guidance in a sense. And of course, I don't tell them what kind of life to live. I present them with a number of ideas that they discuss and project or accept or modify as the case may be. So it's a, it's a fairly, these, these are fairly popular courses. Also here in New York, I organize a meetup group that um, puts out these, these kind of events where we have discussions, basically Socratic discussions about uh, philosophy in general and Hellenistic philosophy in particular, and it's very popular and I, it has more than 5,000 members. Uh, so that's a, that's a significant number of people. Yeah, I've noticed some of that down here in Orlando on meetups and, and such. And, and I know, mm -hmm. I think, I think I saw even that you're going to be a guest on a group called the walled garden. Cause I, I was, I work, I've done some of their podcasts too, and they're like doing some of the same kind of things. So it, uh, yep. It does seem, again, maybe I'm in my own echo chamber now because I talked to you and some of these other people, but it does seem like there's interest because my own backdrop or background, like I've noticed 
the least classical education has tended to be like in um, private Christian schools, like the Geneva Academy. If you ever heard of that, they teach the kind of mm -hmm. classical great books thing. And that's been, very, and that's very conservative Christian groups. And then um, like I have several pastor friends who did like uh, a great books class at like a seminary, but it, but those are, that's obviously right. religiously rooted and uh, Christianity takes on some of these things, but it's, it's interesting to me that a wider, more eclectic, you know, some religious leaning folks, but more secular people are turning back to, to, to these, these great books for, uh, for guidance. And I, I actually hope it works. Cause I, I mean, I think that this is, uh, um, I did, well, I mean, obviously I'm talking to you. I, I love this stuff, um, period. Cause I think it's just, it's just the foundations for good living. Correct. I think it is now, of course, the, there is a reasonable argument there that, it, that is being made by some, even some of my colleagues, that yeah but ancient philosophy wasn't just the greco-romans we we have eastern traditions for instance right buddhism taoism and confucianism that's true and in fact we are expanding i mean often when we teach these courses we either include other traditions or we we offer separate courses on western philosophy eastern traditions african philosophy and so on and so forth that should be done because philosophy is not just a western pursuit however there is a lot of value in the Western version of, of the pursuit of, of philosophy. Uh, and, you know, we shouldn't be thrown away just because it's old or just because it was done mostly by now dead white men. Um, yes, it's true. But, you know, Eastern philosophy was done by uh, now dead non-white men but still <laughs> not a lot of diversity there either right so it's you get the diversity it's funny it's kind of funny actually because when when people talk about the diversity you know in terms of cultural traditions they seem to a lot of the times you get the impression that the west is non-diverse and other traditions are diverse but no tradition is very diverse um Typically, people tend to do things, you know, within their own culture. And so it's not, it's, you know, the, the Eastern tradition, the Indian tradition is just uh, very non-diverse as it internally as the Western one is, uh, or the Chinese is. It's once you start putting together these different traditions that you get diversity. And of course, as I said, that's what we should be doing, especially at a place like here, like City College, which is in fact frequented both by faculty and students who are diverse. But the diversity comes from putting together different perspectives, not from replacing one perspective with another. Uh, that's not diversity. That's just cultural replacement. And it's not, it's just as bad as the thing that you're gonna you're gonna replace. That's a good word. Uh Again, one of the favorite parts of, of every book is, is when you get back to the end and you just have a wonderful, you put a little curriculum together. If people, after they've read the book, if they've been persuaded and they're introduced to interested in ancient literature and uh, you have a uh, just a, well, you actually call it even a syllabus. I think you use that word or curriculum right, right in the book itself. And so put together yeah. a list of readings that people can engage in. Um, talk a little bit about uh, how you decided what to put in there if that's that's even a fair question because it's like you make a little mini canon out of all the things that could be read from the ancient right. world there right yeah the choice the choices are are vast uh and i had to sort of narrow it down in a in a, in a one way or another the first way the first thing that i did was to go to what the greco-romans themselves were doing they were uh often building a curriculum out of three types of works 
literature that concerns action. And these are typically biographies, you know, moral biographies, like Diogenes Laertius' Lives of the Eminent Philosophers, for instance, or Plutarch uh, Parallel Lives, or, or Xenophon's Memorabilia, which is about the life of Socrates. Now, why would you want to read those, those things? Because philosophy in action means that you need to look at how the philosophers themselves practice their, their philosophy. And so you want to learn from not just from Socrates' philosophy, but from Socrates' life, uh, not just from Zeno uh, of Citium, the founder of Stoicism philosophy, but from his life, etc. So that's the first group of, of readings. The second one is literature concerned with arguments in a more standard philosophical fashion. So in other words, it's providing you the theory uh, behind those philosophies. Uh, for instance, Seneca's On Anger or Epictetus's discourses. But Seneca's on anger is a very good example because it's specifically about a particular problem which is analyzed very carefully by Seneca on uh, from a philosophical perspective. And it gives you the theory of why what anger is and how you deal with it and why you want to deal with it in a certain in a certain fashion. So that's the second group. And then the last group of readings has to do with what are sometimes referred to as spiritual exercises. The, the word famously uh, was used by Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits uh, in the 1500s, but in fact, it comes from the Greco-Roman tradition. One example from antiquity of spiritual exercises is microcellular meditations. The entire book is an exercise, is a spiritual exercise. It's based essentially what we today call a um, philosophical journal. It's it's Marcus writing to himself about issues that concerned him and how he reacted or how he behaved under this or that circumstance so that he could learn from himself, essentially, so that he can reflect, meditate on his own actions and, and learn from it. So these are the three basic um, types of readings, biographies, theoretical treatises, and spiritual exercises. And then specifically, I picked some of the, what I think are the best examples that uh, arrived to us from uh, the Greco-Roman period, including all of the books that I just uh, just mentioned. Of course, there are others, but those that, that those groups, that, the groups that I, that I put together, I think gives you a very good survey of uh, ancient Greco-Roman practical philosophy. No, I, I, and I agree. And, uh, and honestly, I even liked, I know you're, got, you're, you're at the very last one, you at the cost of being immodest, you put your, your book on the handbook for new Stoics, but I actually <laughs> thought that was a really good thing. Cause the one thing I appreciate about that book was um, you, you actually model the spiritual exercises. I mean, that's what the whole book basically is. So you got 52, I mean, and, and you know, there's yep. of people every week they do one and they do that. And um, so I, you know, I, I, I love the canon, especially the, everything you just said, biography, theory, practice, because that's that's what education ultimately is. Right. Um, I'm going to be fair to your time. So I'm going to get to the last two questions here uh, really quick. Sounds so I appreciate your time here. Um, I mean, you've written some, uh, again, I really enjoy your books and I hope you keep writing. So yeah. like, uh, you know, like what's next? I mean, I'm sure you got some academic like journal stuff maybe going on here, but like, do you have another book coming up that's already planned after a quest for character? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, I am about to start a sabbatical year. So in, uh, in January of 23, I'll, I'll be on sabbatical, which for those who are not in academia means that for an entire year, I will not have to teach, I will not have to participate into any kind of, you know, 
meetings or administrative work or of any sort, I just will focus the entire time on a particular project. And the project that I picked is in fact a new book. Uh, the tentative title is um, uh, The Happy Skeptic. And it is about skepticism in particular seen from the point of view of Marcus Tullius Cicero, who was a Roman philosopher, statesman and uh, politician and uh, an advocate, so um, a lawyer. And the idea is this, that I've always been interested in skepticism. Uh, skepticism was one of the Greco-Roman philosophies. And there was a lot of interaction, for instance, at the time going on between Stoicism and skepticism. The skeptics and the Stoics answered, asked each other questions and answered each other's questions on a, uh, on a regular basis. And Cicero, in particular, I think is the most interesting of the ancient skeptics because he's, um, he's really his own brand of philosophy. He came up with a very original uh, sort of uh, version of skepticism. He's not even, he's not often, often not given enough credit for it. Often you, you hear about Cicero as the guy who translated the Greeks for the Romans, basically, the guy who, you know, was a popularizer of Greek philosophy for the Romans. And he certainly did do that, and there's no question about it. But he was also a very good philosopher in his own right. And more importantly, he was a practical philosopher because he had practical experience as he started out his career as a lawyer arguing usually as a defense attorney uh, in the roman court and then he became a statesman he was he was a, a roman senator and he became a consul which was the highest office political office in republican rome so the guy knew about practical philosophy in the literal sense of the word it was it was obviously interested in ethics and 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 so having a moral compass but he was also interested in getting things done and so i've always been curious about the skepticism in general and cicero in particular and so i'm going to spend next year traveling a little bit around the mediterranean tracking down many of the locations where cicero actually lived so rome sicily Western Turkey, um, Athens, and a, and a few other places in uh, in Greece. Uh, while I will be writing a, this book about modern skepticism, about how to be a modern skeptic, but uh, using Cicero as a as a guide. Well, that's going to be great. I, I read a biography of Cicero a year or two ago, so I mean, that's mm -hmm. gonna, I'm looking forward to that. I'm just glad you're kind of going through these different uh, aspects of ancient philosophy <laughs> and bringing them up for today. So uh, thank you uh, for that. Um, where's the best place for uh, listeners to find out more about you? And maybe do you have a preferred place where you like people to go to find your books? Yeah, the books, of course, can be found anywhere books are found. But um, if people are interested in my writings, podcasts, videos, and all that sort of stuff, uh, they can go to massimopilducci.org and you'll find pretty much everything there. Okay, and and, uh, and Massimo, just grateful for you. Thank you for using your gifts and sharing your um, brilliance. I mean, and I mean that in a real uh, with uh, with with real truth in a way that's actually accessible for everyone because you're making a real contribution. And I'm, I'm I'm grateful that you were my guest today. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Right. And everyone, thanks for listening all the way to the end of this week's episode of Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Until next time, live by faith, be known by love and be a voice of hope for others.